You're listening to Veg Your Best. There has never been a more important time to be vegan. My name's Michelle Olander, and if I could go vegan in my 50s with all my excuses, I know you can start moving in that direction too. Veg your best, and there's nothing you can't do. Episode 135, The Quest for Character, with Professor Massimo Piliucci. Happy April. Happy April and welcome back, my veggie besties. You know, I've said it before that one of the greatest things about my third act, the work I do now as a podcaster uh, and as a life coach, is that I have an excuse to contact people that I think are terrific and they don't automatically call the cops. In fact, many times they actually agree to come on Veg Your Best. And that is the case here today. This week's guest is another one of the people I have admired and followed and finally invited. Massimo Piliucci is the KD Irani Professor of Philosophy at City College of New York in New York City. And if you're someone like myself, who's found many tools for life in Stoicism, many of which I've, I've shared here, in, especially in my earlier episodes, but if you're like me, you probably, well, you've probably already discovered some of Professor Piliucci's work. Massimo Piliucci is an academic, but he has produced many accessible ways of understanding his pet topics through podcasting, through a weekly newsletter, and a video series at the Great Courses. He shares philosophy, including Stoicism, and also, to use the subtitle from one of his books, Nonsense on Stilts, he tells us how to tell science from bunk. Professor Piliucci holds a PhD in philosophy as well as a second PhD uh, in evolutionary biology, but he has the gift of communicating his academic interests in ways that are not only intelligible to everyone, but I think in ways that are relevant to almost everyone. Questions about how to be a human, how to be a citizen, how to evaluate what's in front of us, and how to determine where our power is as well as where it is not. Ideas that are arguably even more essential today in the 21st century than ever. Professor Piliucci's latest book and the one that we primarily discuss today is The Quest for character, what the story of Socrates and Alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders. And hold on, hold on there. Hold on, if a little part of you just got triggered when you heard the name Socrates, come back to me, come back. Please take the next few minutes to listen. Massimo is the philosophy professor most of us did not have, but we can remedy that right now. I'll check in with you on the other side, and I'll also tell you how you can get a free copy of The Quest for Character after the conversation if, as Professor Piliucci might say, Fortuna allows. Massimo Piliucci, welcome, welcome, welcome to Veg Your Best. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I think I told you when I reached out to you, um, I, I mean, I think Stoicism is having a moment. I think it's having... Yeah, um, a kind of a decade, yes. <laughs> kind of a decade. And uh, it's been very, um, very influential for me. Um, it's been something that uh, I know you've talked in the past about how there's maybe two ways people have been using Stoicism. One's kind of that life hacky, um, mm -hmm. how to like get by influence others um, type of thing. And then there's the more, um, how do we just stay in our lane and live with some virtuousness in our own lives? Right. So I would love you to talk about um, ab about your work. You are not just a philosopher, if you can even say just a philosopher, <laughs> but you are a professor of philosophy and you have, uh, you have a PhD in 
uh, what was the other one in bio evolutionary bi yeah evolutionary biology evolutionary <laughs> biology which um, if we had another podcast uh, time I'd ask you all <laughs> about that and you um, and you are a professor at the City College of New York yes that's right so you are used to teaching and you're going to get a good chance to uh, to <laughs> teach me and to teach our listeners today so we're talking today mostly about uh, your your newest book. I think it's the newest one, the 16th one, yes. The Quest for Character, What the Story of Socrates and Alcibiades Teaches Us About Our Search for Good Leaders. And I don't know why anybody would be worried about good leadership. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I have no idea. You know, why did I write this book at this particular point in time? Yes. Although that is a problem, as I explained, explaining the book that has been around for a for for like two and a half millennia literally uh in ancient greece and rome they had the same problem they wanted you know people wanted virtuous politicians and statesmen they wanted people who knew what they were doing and who would try to do the right thing and then instead most of the times they would get the kind of narcissist and and uh, sort of self-regarding uh, not particularly useful person that we get today. So it's been a problem for a while. What do you think it is about the job? Do you think the job attracts that it's off-putting for people who are very um, concerned about doing the right thing and less off-putting for people who aren't so worried? Yeah, I think there is something to that. Although, of course, we do have examples scattered throughout history, and, and I, I do discuss a few in the book, uh, of you know people who are in fact both interested in doing the right thing and uh, and in in making their contribution to society at large so it's not necessarily that only bad people are attracted uh, to politics but it is true for instance that modern scientific research shows that there are two general uh, occupations that have a much higher statistically much higher number of sociopathic profiles among their practitioners and these two are wall street and politics so high finance and politics and i'm sure that's not going to surprise anybody uh so so there is a need the problem but it's not the kind of problem that doesn't have solutions it's just that the solutions are very hard and to some extent are they are in fact up to us i mean at least in more or less democratic countries like the one in which we live, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we can complain all we want about politicians, but we are the ones who put them up there. It's we, we are the ones who vote. And so perhaps the solution to the problem starts with us, with we're paying more attention ourselves, paying more attention to the issue of character and and of virtue in the in the broad Greek and Roman sense of trying to do the right thing and acting on behalf of other people. Well, I would like at, towards the end for us to come back to that in terms of your kind of injunction to how we can ourselves show leadership and uh, and increase the virtue that we practice in in um, in our lives from a kind of stoic point of view. But start a little bit with the beginning, with the story of Socrates and Alcibiades. How, why did you start with that? Why did you choose that relationship? Well, it's an incredible relationship, which is not often talked talked about. It's it's very well known. I mean, a lot of classical books talk about it. Plutarch, for instance, talks about both Alcibiades and Socrates and their relationships between them. But a lot of modern uh, readers have not heard, especially of Alcibiades. I assume that most people have at least heard of Socrates. Alcibiades was an incredible character. I am surprised that nobody's done a movie or a television series on, on, on this guy. I mean, think about it this way. He was impossibly handsome, uber rich, a member of one of the most prestigious and ancient families in Athens, dashing, courageous, you know, brave. It's like he had everything. And so naturally, he thought that he was perfect for uh, leading Athens, uh, particularly in, in a moment when the city was going through difficult time because this was uh, the beginning of the Peloponnesian War uh, near the, the the end of the 4th century BCE. So th this is a important conflict with Athens, arch-rivals Sparta, which lasted for decades and eventually ended up in, in fact, in the destruction of Athens, as well as the crippling of Sparta so much so that then the Macedonians with Philip II and Alexander the Great just came in and swept the whole the whole place. So, but this is still to come. The, the book starts out, the second chapter of the book is about this 
very interesting dialogue between a young Alcibiades and a middle-aged Socrates. So it turns out that Alcibiades was Socrates' friend and student, and he's in his early 20s, and he goes to Socrates and says, look, I, I think I got everything that I need in order to be a leader of our city. I want to become a statesman and a, and a, a politician and a general, and uh, so what do you think? And, and Socrates sits him down, basically for the equivalent of what we would today call a job interview. And after a while, and he starts asking to Alcibiades, you know, so what would you do and why would you do it and so on. And it's pretty clear uh, early on in the dialogue that Alcibiades is not giving the right answers. It turns out that, yes, he does want to lead the city, but mostly for reasons that have to do with self-aggrandizing and with narcissism. And, you know, it's all about his own glory and his own reputation and his, his wealth, et cetera. So he doesn't really care about, about the city. And so at some point, Socrates stops him and he says, alas, Alcibiades, what a condition you suffer from. I hesitate to name it, but it must be said. You are wedded to stupidity, best of men, of the most extreme sort as the argument accuses you and you accuse yourself. So this is why you are leaping into the affairs of the city before you've been educated. It's like, ouch, here is your friend and mentor who says, you're wedded to stupidity, my friend. Just you shouldn't be doing that. Now, the word that's often translated stupidity, however, is the Greek, the ancient Greek amatia, which is spelled A-M-A-T-H-I-A. And it really means unwisdom. So what Socrates is saying is that, yeah, Alcibiades has all sorts of good things going for him, but he's missing the most important thing. He's not a wise person. He doesn't do things for the right reasons. And that's why Socrates says this is going to be a disaster. If you pursue your that course of action, it's going to be a disaster. And sure enough, that is what happens. You know, so, uh, Alcibiades ignores Socrates' advice, goes on and does become uh, the leader in Athens, he becomes one of uh, Athenian, the Athenians' generals conducting the war, and it's a disaster. It's a disaster not because Alcibiades is not good at what he does. He is very good. He wins a lot of battles, in fact. Um, but he keeps acting for the wrong reasons. He, he keeps putting himself ahead of the welfare of the city. And eventually he makes a number of decisions that turn out to be a complete failure. And uh, he gets killed 20 years later and uh, Athens loses the war. So the quest for character is in, in our leaders is something that has been going on, obviously, for millennia and is still essential. It's still something that you're you're arguing we can't do without. That's right. I argue that we can't do without it. And even though the quest has been going on for a long time, we do have decent examples, pretty good examples of what happens when that quest actually goes well. Mm. So in the book, uh, I focus on the Greeks and the Romans for a number of reasons. First of all, because I am convinced that even though they lived 2000 years ago, things haven't really changed that much uh, in the meantime. Yeah, the technology, of course, has changed dramatically, right? Imagine if let's say Socrates were suddenly to appear on the, our Zoom screens and join this conversation, right? So he will probably be stunned by the technology. He would say, wow, these two can actually communicate, you know, thousands of miles apart in you know, real time and all that sort of stuff. But then after the novelty kind of wears down, he would start listening to what we're talking about. And he said, oh yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I know exactly those topics. You know, I've been talking about with this kind of stuff for, with my friends for a long time. So the actual human nature hasn't changed much. The actual, the things that we want and, and don't want, the things that uh, we are afraid of uh, or, or we try to stay away from are pretty much the same. That's why I think the Greeks and the Romans still have a lot to say to us. But the other reason is, if I had written a book featuring modern politicians, right, then as soon as we start this conversation, I would probably lose half of your audience because we live in a in a time of extreme... Maybe not half of mine, but... Well, maybe not <laughs> half of yours, but, you know, a pretty good chunk. And because we live in a highly polarized uh, environment, political environment, uh, in, you know, immediately people are going to start lining up uh, in, in, along partisan lines yes. and say, oh, you use that example. So you think that person is bad. Therefore, by implication, I am bad. I don't want that. That's that's not conducive to, uh, you know, constructive discourse. I 
I'm betting on the fact that not that many people really have strong feelings about, you know, Julius Caesar or or Cato the Younger or Cicero or something or, or people like that. And so that we can use history basically as a way to detach ourselves from the immediacy of the action of what's going on and then contemplate a, a, a little more broadly uh, what is going on at a, at, a, at a higher level. So there are examples of good politicians, wise people or people who try to uh, act virtuously. And um, uh, typically, these are politicians who are trained in philosophy. Philosophy here in the in the very very broad sense of the term. I'm not I don't I'm not thinking here of a philosopher as somebody like myself with a PhD uh, that works at a university, you know, the ivory tower and all that sort of stuff. Philosopher for the Greeks and the Romans was simply somebody who tries to live a philosophical life that is a mindful life of ethical self-improvement. In fact, in that sense, there's not much difference between being a philosopher or being a religious person. Uh, in, in both cases, you, you're simply trying to do your best to live a, a, a good life as a, as a human being. And there are some good examples, like Cicero, who lived at the end of the Roman Republic uh, in the first century BCE, he was a very practical person. He was a, a lawyer and as well as a statesman, a politician. So he was very practical. He knew that you had to compromise you know, to get things done. But at the same time, he was a philosopher in that broad sense that I was talking about. And so he tried to do the best thing, even at the cost of his own life. Eventually, in fact, he was killed by Mark Antony. Um, but... Um, but when he was in power, he actually did good things. Marcus Aurelius, who was a Stoic philosopher and emperor, uh, was one of the famous five good emperors uh, of, the, of the Roman Empire, the period of the Roman Empire. And under him, things went pretty well. He, he had a difficult reign uh, because uh, he had to deal with uh, internal rebellion, with earthquakes, with flooding of the, of the Tiber River with two uh, frontier wars and yet he tried his best and and you know the, the roman empire actually thrived under him so there are examples in history the american founding fathers if we want to get a little closer to modern times uh, for all their own of course limitations you know as we all know uh, the, these days uh, nevertheless these were people who were trying to do their best and who did a pretty good job compared to uh, other examples in in history and they also were uh, trying to live a philosophical life in fact Jefferson, Washington, uh, John Adams, all of them were very familiar with the Greek and Romans, and in particular with the kind of philosophy that, I, that I'm suggesting would actually be useful for the quest for character. So now, all these people you've mentioned, um, even the people who were trying to live in a virtuous, character-filled way, are also, to our minds, involved with slavery. Yep. Both 2,000 years ago, uh, women were not had no had no say in most most aspects of society or or certainly politics um so it's there is a little bit of a sliding scale right when we look yep. at people and we look for virtuousness we have pre presentism i guess you would call it we 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 look at the world from our eyes right. and how do you suggest that if somebody because I have heard people just discount the whole concept of the Stoics and of Greek philosophy, that it's like, okay, well, that is a misogynistic and it was based on colonialism and, and um, right. slavery. So how do you help people um, not shut that down, not shut yeah. down their, their thoughts on it? Yeah, that's a very good question and, and a fair question. I think there are a number of things to consider here. Um, first of all, I, I like to learn from history rather than mount on my own soapbox and criticize and dismiss people for their own uh, mistakes. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't acknowledge all the things you said. Yes, of course, the condition of women throughout most of history, not just the ancient history, but most of history. In fact, what could argue even now, it's certainly not ideal. It's had it's improved a little bit, but but it's not, we're not quite there yet. Uh, slavery was a thing. Uh, throughout, again, most of the ancient world. Although to use the word colonialism, for instance, uh, or a, I don't want to hear about these old white men kind of thing, is actually betrays a little bit of uh, lack of understanding of that history. 
uh, colonialism is really a recent thing. It's last, you know, post It's a post enlightenment phenomenon. It's like last couple of hundred years. Um, slavery did exist in the ancient world, but it was a very different concept from what it has been in more recent times. For one thing, is now it was not based on racism, and the reason for that is because anybody could become a slave. The Romans had slaves, the Greeks had slaves, of course, the Egyptians had slaves, the North Africans had slaves, everybody had slaves, the Chinese had slaves, etc. Um, but they also were very aware of the fact that if they lost the next battle, they would become slaves themselves. So it wasn't a question of you're a slave because you're half a man or inferior to me or you know whatever uh, the modern version, the post-Enlightenment version of racism and, and slavery is. It was just a fact of life. The economy in the ancient world was run essentially by slaves everywhere, not just the Greeks and the Romans. And this wasn't a matter of having people uh, thinking in terms that, that we are more familiar with. So we need to understand where these people were. But nevertheless, yes, absolutely. Slavery was a thing and women didn't really have much to say about about society in large and those are certainly shortcomings but that is why the best translations for instance of modern of the classics the, the best modern translation of this of the classics tend to use uh, more pluralistic language because they try to extract what was universal about the, what the greeks and the romans were doing not what was very specific to their time but even if we want to be very specific for instance the stoics in particular we're actually in, in uh, ahead of their time, and then one of the one of the things that we need to give credit to people is when they are not only just a reflection. You know, you can't criticize somebody for being just average for their times because that's what the, what they are. We nobody can transcend transcend its own times. You know, just wait until the next generations are going to criticize our own time, and then we're going to have a lot of fun uh, because we're going to be the bad guys. But um, so we also need to acknowledge when people were, in fact, ahead of their times. The Stoics in particular, both in both of those uh, issues, both of those issues that you just mentioned, were, in fact, ahead of their time. Seneca has a famous letter uh, where he says to his friend Lucilius, you know, the one that you call a slave is a human being just like you, just like you suffers and wants and, and is happy or unhappy and so on and so forth. And so you should think of him as you think of yourself. Uh, he is one of your brothers, even though he happens to be in a situation where obviously uh, it's it's bad. Um, but but it, there is this recognition of the humanity of these people. And in fact, other Stoics went even further. And uh, like Zeno, who was Zeno of Sitium, who was the founder of Stoicism, actually said that's, that um, slavery is a, an abomination. It's, a, it's an evil. It's, it's, so, so there were actually criticisms at the time. As far as women are concerned, a number of women did practice Stoicism, but more importantly, we have several of the Stoic authors who explicitly say that women have just the same intellectual ability as men, and they ought to be able to learn and practice philosophy just like everybody else. Seneca says so, Epictetus says so, uh, Musonius Rufus says so. So these are things that need to be um, acknowledged just as much as we want to acknowledge the, the, the problems, which were certainly there. Nevertheless, I think that the, the broad answer to your question is there is no um, contradiction in on the one hand acknowledging the limitations of these people on the grounds that everybody every generation and every place and time has its own limitations on the one hand and at the same time to admire them for what for how they were able to transcend those limitations and and put black and white in writing things that are still actually valid and useful for us today so so there is it's it's not and also you mentioned an interesting word, presentism, right? So presentism is this notion, which is criticized in uh, usually in philosophy, of projecting our own values on cultures from the past, right? Without acknowledging that the situation was very different, the, the cultural situation, the historical situation, the economic situation, and so on and so forth. And so it's too easy for us to sort of get on our soapbox and say, oh, well, look at those people, you know. Um, 
but be careful if you do that, because as I said, the next generation is going to do the same to you, and then you're not going to be the one laughing. Yeah, I'm glad we took the time for you to answer that, because it is something I, I get pushed back about often, and when I'm when I'm talking about things, and I, um, and as a vegan, as somebody who's working with people to try to help them limit or eliminate the consumption of animal products, this is this is our this is an issue now that not everybody agrees about that we have some people um some people consider extremely moral some people consider it just a health issue some people consider yep. it a, a, a climactic or environmental issue and so how we're coming to it now is part of this idea of living with character living with uh, some yep. virtue temperance perhaps prudence so all these things that the stoics teach us to keep reframing our behavior through uh, using a lens of that sort yeah you just mentioned veganism now i i am absolutely convinced for instance that next generations are going to look at us and say wow these people were really barbarians they actually ate meat uh, this is this is going to be one of those issues that eventually is going to be settled, I believe, and it's not going to be settled in favor of the current generation. Uh, it's it's going to look like in the future, like we were a bunch of barbarians just going around killing animals uh, that we had no business in doing. And then also you mentioned climate. I mean, we want to talk about a big issue that posterity is going to be critical of us for. We are literally ruining the planet. We're not just ruining other people's lives. We're literally ruining the planet. So, you know. Perhaps just like calming down a little bit with this, you know, oh, he did this or he did that, because, you know, look at it in your mirror, mirror first and then and then we'll see what, what happens. The other thing that since we're talking about this is worth mentioning is uh, uh, this issue that that I hear a lot of, oh, I don't want to hear uh, or read, you know, yet another dead old white man. Yeah. But the fact is, white in the sense as we understand it today, again, in a in a colonial, post-colonial sense, the concept did not exist in ancient Greece and Rome. In fact, it did not exist again until the alignment, pretty much. Mm -hmm. So I read recently an article by um, somebody who was trying to be a little controversial, and the title of the article was, Plato was not a white man. And he didn't mean Plato did not have a white skin. He probably mm. did, although we don't know, actually, for sure. Um, but he meant that the concept of whiteness, as we understand it in modern political parlance, simply did not exist. The Romans and the Greeks would have looked at you in you know, very strange way if you had said, oh, you guys are white. It's like, white? What does that mean? What does the color of my skin have to do with anything? Uh, Greek and Roman society was were highly diverse. Uh, there, there were people from all over the Mediterranean. In fact, uh, it has been pointed out that even though we tend to think of uh, Athens as the birthplace of philosophy, most of the philosophers that we recognize that lived in Athens and practiced in Athens were actually foreigners. Zeno of Citium, the founder of Stoicism, was from Cyprus. He was a Phoenician. It was not even a Greek. Um, you know, we tend to think of Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, and Epictetus as Romans, but the only one of those three that actually was born in Rome was Marcus. Seneca was Spanish, and and uh, Epictetus was Greek, and by modern standards, he would he would have lived in in Western Turkey. So the, this whole notion that we again that is that is the danger of projecting our own categories and our own way of thinking back to places and people where it doesn't belong. And I think this is, from my from my point of view, this is why history is so important, and um, right. it's also very divisive. I know I my, my my children are all grown. I have grandchildren now. Um, history, when my kids were going to high school, was taught was basically no one could no one could decide what they were supposed to be teaching the kids because everybody <laughs> was upset about it. <laughs> so right. so in that case, almost nothing got taught. In my opinion, almost nothing got taught. Um, I think because of this lens of like looking for the bad guys everywhere yeah. who, who deserve to be called out or not called out. That's exactly the wrong term. But to deserve to be held to a standard that we go yeah. not to pretend that that it didn't matter, but yeah. to also understand what else was going on in, in that period of time. Exactly. You don't want to wash out all of that stuff. You don't you need to know we need. I mean, the way we learn from from other people, from other cultures, precisely by acknowledging what they did 
wrong and what they did right. Not one or the other. You can't just say, you know, oh, the Greek and Romans were all perfect. No, they were not. They were flawed human beings like everybody else. But you can also not dismiss what turns out to be one of the great roots of modern society, not just Western society, but modern society in general. Otherwise, you don't understand where a lot of other concepts, a lot of our language, a lot of our culture actually comes from. And therefore, you're not in a position to criticize it if you want to criticize it, because, you know, if ignorance just doesn't is not a good starting point for criticism let's put it, let's put it that way yeah and i th i think we i think we can um also learn something from how our leaders become leaders because they are leading us so we we, we you talk more towards the end of the book about um our relationship as people in asking for the leadership or demanding the leadership that we that we want in terms yeah. of our behavior. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that we need largely to do two things in order to improve uh, leadership in our in, in modern society. And, and both of these things are very difficult. Look, if anybody is going to pick up the quest for character thinking that, oh, okay, where's the silver bullet? You know, and it's like, no, you're not, you're, I'm sorry, you're not going to find that. Uh, one of the great Italian writers of, of the 20th century, Umberto Eco, once said that uh, for every complex problem, there is a simple solution and it's usually wrong. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, no, you're not going to find simple solutions. However, I do believe that there are ways in which we can improve things, but they're not easy to implement. And I think that largely there are two major ways in which we can improve things. One I already briefly mentioned a few minutes ago during our conversation. That is, we have to remember that at the end of the day, at least in more or less democratic societies, the buck stops with us. It's easy to blame the politicians, but in fact, we are the ones that put the politicians there. And yes, I'm I am completely aware of structural issues, the role of money uh, in politics and all that sort of stuff. Yes, but at the end of the day, if we live in a democracy, again, more or less, that's up to us. If we want to change things, even at the structural level, we are the ones that have to start asking the hard questions and, and voting accordingly. And I think that one of the problems is that we are not, in fact, thinking correctly or, or, or in a constructive way about this whole thing. We have been falling into increasing bipartisan, uh, you know, uh, partisan polarization. This is a re rather recent trend. I mean, uh, uh, social scientists have actually tracked it. It's only in the last 20, 25 years uh, or thereabout, maybe 30 years, uh, which seems like a long time, but it's not, historically speaking, uh, where if you actually track, you know, uh, by, by quantitatively, you'll see that there has been a huge increase in polarization, both in the United States, especially in the United States, but also in European countries. And this is this is us. We are doing this thing. And one of the things that we should be doing instead is to go back to conversations of character and virtue. I understand that the word, the very word virtue sounds so old-fashioned, you know, almost obsolete. You know, most people, if you, if you mention virtue, start thinking about the Christian virtues like, uh, you know, purity and chastity and stuff like that. But of course, in the case of the Greek and Romans, that's not what we're talking about. To be virtuous means to be an excellent human being. Virtue, literally in Greek, arete, means excellence. And to be an excellent human being means to be an ethical human being, a human being that does his best or her best in order to improve, to live well with other people and improve society at large, what the Stoics call the cosmopolis, the, 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 the society of all of humanity, right? thinking of other human beings as our brothers and sisters. So we need to resume talking about virtue and demand virtue from ourselves, first and foremost. And then, of course, from our leaders, our our politicians. But if we don't even have the conversation, then we don't have the parameters. Because well, what does it mean to be virtuous? How do you pick? How do you recognize whether people are acting virtuously or not? If we don't have that that conversation, we are simply not making any progress. And I'm not talking just about philosophy. There's there's pretty solid science behind this thing. A book that I really appreciated that came out on the science side of things uh, two or three years ago is called Character Gap by Christian Miller. Miller is a specialist, he's a psychologist, and he's a specialist on character. And the character gap is the, the difference between where we think we are and where we should be. Mm -hmm. 
mm -hmm. uh, in terms of our own character, right? There is a gap because we're not as good as we think we are. And, and the question is, how do you actually bridge that gap? And it turns out that both the Greco-Romans and modern science do have very practical suggestions on how to become better human beings. So that's one thing that we need to do. The second thing is we need to teach the next generation because this is a long-term project. This isn't just about us. This is about what's going to happen to the next generations. And by and large, we just don't do it. We don't teach ethics and critical thinking to the next generation. In fact, the few at least in the United States, the few times that people try, because there are some programs at the pre-college level that try to do that, typically they run into oppositions from both local politicians and even parents often who don't want the teachers to mess around with things like ethics because they think they know better. Uh, or perhaps they're, they're a little afraid of kids who start developing critical thinking, but it can be done. Um, one beautiful example came out a couple of years ago in a documentary. Uh, the, the documentary is called Young Plato, and it's set in Belfast in Northern Ireland. And it's about the principal of an elementary school who decides to teach practical philosophy to his kids. Well, these are kids, you know, like 70, 80, 90 years old. And this guy starts talking to them about the Stoics and about Socrates and about Buddha and about Confucius and all that sort of stuff. And you can see in the documentary the profound effect that this has on the kids. All of a sudden, the kids have uh, tools at their disposal to deal not just with you know bullying on the in the schoolyard, which is a common phenomenon, but more broadly uh, with the atmosphere of violence. Uh, that permeates the society in which they are growing up. As I said, it's Belfast, right? So, uh, so there's this incredible scene where one of the students comes to the principal and he's obviously distressed. Uh, and and the principal says, you know, what's going on? And and the student says, well, my father told me that I need need to punch them. Them being somebody on the other side of the Catholic Protestant divide, because that's the only way we're going to be. You know, asserting ourselves and they're bad people, etc. And and so, but obviously the kid didn't want to do this, right? He was very uncomfortable with the whole thing. And the principal sits him down and says, "Okay, I am going to teach you how to argue with your parents." Now, no parent wants to hear that. <laughs> a seven-year-old then that comes home and says, "Dad, I think you're wrong about this because." So that may explain some of the uh, recalcitrance that we have as parents, as politicians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think that is absolutely the thing to do. That movie ought to be mandatory, you know, viewing for everybody who is interested in saying, in exploring. How do we actually make the next generation better and not just talk about it? You know, the funny thing about Americans during election period is that uh, every time there is an election, especially a national election, uh, journalists, you know, polls ask people, what are their top five issues? And almost invariably, one of the top five issues is education. And then we don't do anything about it. In fact, arguably we made U.S. education worse over the last 20 or 30 years. There, there are, I'm not, this is not just my opinion. There are pretty good quantitative indicators of the fact that American students are doing worse and worse compared to their international peers. So we talk about it. We think it's important, but we don't actually do anything about it. So once again, it starts with us. Uh, we, we can't wait for somebody else to come in and solve our problems. We need to start talking about character, voting with character in mind, and most importantly, educating our kids, our own kids, the next generation, in terms of what is a good character. Now, you teach uh, undergraduates mostly, right? Or yes. Entirely? Entirely? No, I do teach some graduate level courses, but mostly it's undergraduate, yes. So, and so they're typically 18 to 22 years old, yep. roughly, when most of them, when you see them. So they are still within the formative stage or are they are they completely past <laughs> is there no hope for them <laughs> they're almost gone they're almost gone and and i and i tell them so right at the beginning i say look uh the evidence is that the human brain stops growing pretty much in your early 20s 
it, it happens a little earlier for, for women and a little later for men. Men tend to be immature into their mid-20s, basically. For women, it happens a little earlier. But essentially, by the time you're in college, most of your brain patterns and therefore behavioral patterns are set. Now, that doesn't mean they cannot change for the, throughout the rest of your life, but they, they change only if you actually make an effort. Uh, and so it really is mostly up to you. Uh, you know, I can provide you with tools, with suggestions and all that sort of stuff, but it's up to you. If you really want to shape somebody's character, as both the Greco-Romans understood and even the Jesuits, you know, the the, the Christian um, uh, sect uh, of Jesuits have a saying, they, they say, give me a child of seven and I'll give you a man of 14, right? The age of reason starts even according to modern uh, cognitive psychology and developmental psychology starts around seven or eight years old. That's the time when uh, kids begin to be able to articulate uh, abstract thought in a in a more sophisticated fashion. And it ends pretty much a little later than 14. It ends in your late teens or early 20s when your brain is essentially settled. That is the window. And so we should start teaching critical thinking and philosophy and whatever else we want to teach to our kids at age seven and then keep going. Um, now, that said, it's not hopeless even for adults, however. I think that analogy is actually um, a very good analogy on you know, how to improve your character at pretty much any age comes from one of the Platonic dialogues, the Protagoras. Uh, that is a dialogue where Socrates is talking to Protagoras, who is a sophist. And Socrates initially is pretty skeptical that you can teach virtue to other people. He says, you know, I don't... I don't see many teachers of virtue going around. Um, I see the sons of virtuous fathers who are not themselves virtuous. You would think that if anybody could teach virtue, that would be your father to his son. So it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure that this thing is going to work. And Protagoras says, hold on a second here. Let's think about what virtue is. And, and Protagoras says, virtue is a skill. It's a technique. It's similar to learning a musical instrument. So he says, you know, imagine you want to learn the flute. What, how do you do that? Or to try to put in a terms a little bit more modern, imagine myself trying to learn an alto sax, which is actually which I've actually done in the course of my life, right? So and as an adult, not as a as a child. So what do you do? Well, you do three things. You do need a little bit of theory. I mean, you want to know something about musical notations, the relationships between the notes, because otherwise you kind of go blind. You, you just don't, or deaf. You don't, you just don't, don't, don't know what you're doing. So a little bit of theory is fine. Then a good teacher would be a good thing, right? Because a good teacher uh, obviously cannot learn things for you, but it can point out, you know, your technique is not quite right. You can improve this. It can give you exercises, that sort of stuff. But the most important component of learning how to play a musical instrument is practice, 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 practice every day, right? You start with simple uh, scales and you get more complicated. You start with simple tunes and then you get complicated, more complicated. You do it. You, you engage in mindful effort every day. Now, by the end of that dialogue, Socrates is convinced. He says, okay, I get it. I think we I think we can do this. But how do you actually practice virtue? Because it's easy enough to understand how you practice a musical instrument, right? But virtue? It's like, what? how does that work? Well, imagine, for instance, that you realize that, um, you know, you could be more generous, right? You say, uh, yeah, a little bit of self-analysis says, yeah, I could, there's many things I could improve myself, but generosity is probably one that I need to work on. Well, how do you practice becoming more generous? There's a number of ways, but for instance, you could decide, make a mindful decision in the morning of picking up some change, put in your pockets, go out of your house, and then the first homeless person you see, you just give them the change, no questions asked. What's going to happen is that initially that's going to feel awkward. It's going to feel like, I don't know what I'm doing. Am I really doing the right thing? Is this going to help? That sort of stuff. But if you insist, if you keep doing it, it becomes a habit. And Aristotle says that the way to learn virtue is to make it become a habit. 
at some point, you will have done that simple sequence of movements so many times that your hand just goes to the pocket in, in you know, before to the change before you leave the house. And then it goes to the pocket as soon as you see the homeless person. And you're going to do it on, automatically. Once you manage to make this automatic, then you actually have improved that aspect of your character. And so similarly, you can do all sorts of similar exercises. So this can be done, but it... and. Just like learning a musical instrument, it's much easier if you do it as a kid, right? Mm. Later on, you can still do it, but it requires more effort. It you're not you, you don't become as good as at it as you would have otherwise, but you can still improve. You know, the only people who cannot improve at all at musical in, uh, playing a musical instrument are tone deaf people, and the equivalent uh, in the case of virtue is sociopaths or psychopaths mm. fine if you're a psychopath there's nothing i can do for you but there are not that many psychopaths around it's it's you know the, the world is not full i'll of take your word for that <laughs> i i i'm i'm hoping <laughs> well you know you're what you're saying it, it, this is what i do with coaching is we we start something that's awkward that's new that we decide for a reason is important so whatever that is, if, yeah. if it is to become vegan, if it is to write your book, if it is to be, have better relationships, whatever it is, it's not coming that easily to begin with. And there is the first step that you take and you, but you, from the, the uh, prefrontal cortex, you make that decision. Right. It's not what's coming naturally. And sometimes people push back, oh, well, it should be easy, right? If I, If people were supposed to be generous, wouldn't everybody just be generous? There's that kind of pushback right. about some of these things. Right. And yeah. Well, that's like saying, um, you know, I don't want to be uh, engaging in a healthy lifestyle because it comes natural to me to stay on the couch and eat and eat potato chips. It's like, well, no, wait a minute. <laughs> First of all, no, it doesn't actually come natural. Mm -hmm. uh, spending time on the on the couch in front of the television, it's clearly a cultural thing, and it's clearly very recent uh, for most of the history of humanity. The natural thing was actually to get off your butt and start going looking for food not not to reach for the for the potato chips so what is natural and what is not natural depends a lot on the environment in which we grow up right and and the modern environment is actually uh, very different from what is actually natural but the fact that the, the, at the end of the day is if you realize that something is good for you it doesn't matter whether it comes natural or not you just get up and and start and start doing it and you're absolutely right the first stop is the cognitive one as you know, uh, the stoicism was the inspiration behind cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most uh, one of the most evidence-based types of psychotherapy. And if you even look at just the name, cognitive behavioral therapy, it is essentially a summary of what I just said. The first step is cognition. You have to make the decision. Right. You have to acknowledge that there is a problem that needs to be solved, and then you want to solve that problem. It's like people say at the beginning of Alcoholic Anonymous meetings, right? The first thing is to acknowledge that you have a problem and to to want to solve that problem. Because otherwise, if you don't do that, then, then nothing else is going to help. Mm. The second step is behavioral. You start by, you, by implementing a new behavior. And of course, initially, it's going to be awkward and feeling unnatural and so on and so forth. When I started, when I decided a number of years ago that it was about time to start taking care of my body and go to the gym on a regular basis, oh boy, did I hate it. Uh, it really was not natural at all. I much rather stay home and, and read a book. I'm sorry. I just not, you know, whenever I went to the to the gym and the nice lady behind the counter would look at me and say, enjoy your workout. I wanted to say, what are you kidding me? I'm not enjoying anything. I do this because I have to. I'm not enjoying it. But now, if I don't actually go to the gym many years later, I do feel bad. And not just psychologically bad, physically bad, right? I feel the impulse, the, the necessity, the need to actually get up and, and go to the gym. Why? Because it has become a habit. So mm -hmm. cognitive decision, behavioral implementation that is going to have the therapeutic effect. That's going to actually change your attitude in the long run. You know, one of the one of the things that people are surprised for for some reason uh, when they approach me uh, about the effects of stoicism. Right? For instance, at the peak of the pandemic, I got an incredible number of calls for people who wanted to engage in in stoic based uh, therapy, essentially. 
And, you know, understandably, we, we were all under stress, some more, some less, but, you know, it was a stressful condition for, for a lot of people. And so it's like, oh, stoicism is certainly going to help. And then some people were, were surprised that, that, that stoicism wasn't helping immediately, that this was not a, <laughs> it's like, hey, I learned the principles. Now, why, why am, I, am I not happy? Why is not my life? And so I had to come up with an analogy to explain why this was, was the case. And I thought, it's like, look, imagine that your goal is to get into the ring with a boxer, with a professional boxer, and survive one round. Now, what do you think is going to happen if you have never done any boxing at all, not paying attention to your reflexes, your muscles, nothing? And then you ask a coach, hey, can you give me a couple of tips right before I jump into the ring? I think you're going to be pummeled. I, I don't think you're going to do very well. Right now, I might the coach might be able to teach you enough to withstand, you know, the first few seconds of it, perhaps, but you're not going to do well. When are you going to do well if you start training way before the problem actually, you know, the test actually uh, was in front of you? So, of course, if we if we wait until the pandemic comes or if we wait until uh, a loved one dies, or if we wait until we lose our job, if we waited for, for one of the major setbacks in life, or of course, the ultimate test of character, as Seneca puts it, if we wait until our own demise is about to come to, to come uh, on us, well, then yeah, stoicism isn't going to do much, but nothing is going to do much at that point, because you're not prepared. That is why Seneca said that our entire life is a preparation for these kinds of problems. Right, and so you need to start. Uh, there's a there's a nice bit nice bit in um, Epictetus's handbook, where near the end, where he says, "Look, the Olympic Games have already started, and you're already behind. So it's like, chop chop. It's time to start going here. Like, what what are you waiting for? Yeah, I I, I well, I've I've seen a lot of people really struggle since the pandemic in a way that I was not prepared for how hard people took it. Um, I think because I had a very lucky, happy pandemic compared to most people. Um, you work with young people. I think young people had a particularly difficult time yeah. uh, that I would not have predicted either from my vantage point um, as a mom of now, now young, well, they're adults now, they're in their 30s, around 30. Um, so they actually were already in relationships, finished with university, in jobs, also luckily like luckily placed during the pandemic i i recently um was was teaching uh, on this subject that i think young people really really need to see us um tackling important issues and dealing mm -hmm. with things that are unpleasant and difficult um with a level of hope and a level of um commitment I really think young people need to see us working right now um, if we're older yeah. adults, because I think a lot of them have really felt like the, the rug's been pulled out from under them. I'm wondering from your vantage point as a professor, seeing young people every day, if you if you have something to add on that, that a way that we can support our young adults. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I was surprised as well by just how hard the pandemic hit, especially young people. As you you were saying, I'm also in a sense in a privileged position. I you know I didn't lose my job. Um, I the, my university was able very quickly actually to switch to online teaching. So for me, very few things actually changed. Nevertheless, even I actually suffered. I started having health problems that I wasn't expecting. All of a sudden, uh, you know, there were also psychological issues. Even though for me, this was actually a rather benign time so i can imagine somebody who does not have the tools because he's younger or she she's younger she hasn't been uh, through any other problems before or because they lost their jobs i mean some of my students uh, were joining classes online at the same time as they were working at the local pharmacy behind the behind the counter so which is as you might imagine not an ideal thing to do uh, if you if you're taking classes that are already uh, you know, challenging and absorbing in the first place. You, you can't really do that kind of thing. But people did it. What can we do? I think that, that you, you got it exactly right. That example here, going by example, showing by example, 
instead of just talking and talking and talking to people. Uh, talk, it's easy. And, uh, and of course, to some extent, it's necessary. We, you know, we are a verbally articulate species. So we, we do teach each other and help each other by talking. But most importantly is we need to model that kind of behavior for the next generation. It's not fair and way too easy to start pointing fingers and what well, you need to do this and you need to do. Well, what am I doing here? What is my contribution to society? How am I reacting to things? So model your behavior. And, and I, I try to do that, not just with my students, but with my daughter. You know, my daughter is 26 now. And fortunately, she has weathered the pandemics fairly well. You know, she, she she's doing nicely and all that sort of stuff. But I very consciously try to model what I'm talking about with her. Uh, we often have conversations about her problems or my problems and, and how we both deal with it. But she also sees on a day-to-day -day basis how I actually react to things. How, for instance, I tend not to catastrophize things. That's a term that comes from one of the branches of cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy. A lot of people have a tendency to catastrophize. Oh, I lost my job. That's the end of the world. Or, uh, oh, I, you know, I have uh, suffered this setback or that's oh, that's the end of the world. I can't or relationship possibly. falls relationships. Apart. It's mm -hmm. a big one. That's right. But relationship or friendships, it's a big one. And the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, therapist, one of the first things they do is to teach you not to catastrophize, but to try to look at the situation with as objective a a approach as possible and describe it in objective terms like well what happened oh it's a horrible thing i lost my job no wait a minute horrible is a judgment yeah. it's not an objective thing this is your subjective reaction to it so take horrible out of the way the fact is you did have a job until today and now you don't okay now what can you do about it what is what is the next step what is it that you're learning from this experience perhaps this is going to actually open up opportunities uh, that you might not have seen before, or it's going to force you to do things in a different way that in the long term uh, might work out even better for you, or if not better, at least just as well as if it hadn't happened. But if you, of course, immediately start looking at something as a setback, as a instead of a challenge, as a catastrophe, as instead of an opportunity, then that's problematic. It's not very helpful. And of course, surprise, surprise, the Stoics were saying exactly the same thing. Your dichotomy right? of control. Yes, yeah. uh, that's right. Epictetus, when Epictetus says some things are up to us and other things are not up to us, and a good life is is the result of focusing on the things that are up to us because that's where your agency is. That's where you can actually solve problems. And also, at the same time, working toward acceptance with serenity and equanimity are the kinds of things you cannot change. And we're talking about everything from fairly major things like losing a job or a breakup in a relationship to even minor things. You know, one of my favorite exercises at these days, uh, these days is when I go to the airport, because of course, <laughs> I travel a lot. It's not fun for anyone. <laughs> not fun for, every, for anyone. But since I travel a lot, more often than not, it does happen that the flight gets canceled or delayed, right? And, you know, I see people around me who just react as like, oh, this is a catastrophe. This is horrible. I'm going to miss this or I'm going to miss that. And how is it possible that this thing happened? Well, it happened. You do not control it. It's not something that you can change. So the next question is, instead of getting upset and start yelling at the poor person gate behind agent, the, yeah. you know, the gate agent behind the counter who doesn't know it's not their fault. They would very much want you to be out of the way on the plane. <laughs> yes. They don't, they don't want to deal <laughs> with you. So it's not like they're not doing it on purpose. Right. So instead of doing that, then what is it up to, up to you? First of all, is to get details of the situation and try to book yourself on the next flight if possible. Right. Once you've done that and say, okay, well, but the next flight is in four hours. Okay. There's a nice bar around the corner and I have a book. So let's sit down, get a drink and start reading and use your time in a good in a good way. And, you know, it's going to pass and you're going to get on the next on the next plane. So the, the economy of control, the, what Epictetus calls the fundamental rule of life, really applies everywhere from the small things to the big things. But I was also thinking of Marcus Aurelius, who in the meditations at one point says that whenever there is an obstacle, there's always a way around that obstacle 
And often what we do is we keep banging our head on the obstacle directly. And, and if the obstacle is in fact a fairly strong wall, all it's going to happen is that we're going to break our, our head, or at least we're going to have a big headache at the end of the day. But there are ways around it. The obstacle becomes the way, he says, in the sense that this is actually not only a Stoic, but a Taoist uh, mm-hmm. principle, right? This, this notion that instead of putting yourself in opposition to events, take a look at what the events are, what the nature of these events are, and trying to take advantage of it, try to go with the flow. Going with the flow doesn't mean being overrun by by the events. It just means to try to, to pick a new path that might be at the very least uh, less uh, you know, obstructive and less less destructive than it might have been otherwise. So, so these are things that we can learn from the ancients because they're still very much... Uh, here today and helpful today uh, to, to us, regardless of the fact that they were articulated by people two millennia ago. And they're tools that are not necessarily natural. They're not necessarily the way we, as young people or children or even adults, go, oh, yes, this is my opportunity. It's something we have to decide to look yeah. to bring to our our, our obstacles. It's it, it comes from, as you say, the cognition. We have to say, how can I use this? situation and it's a decision more than more than just a uh oh of course it's it's not again not natural it is a yeah. way of of using our 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 special species abilities <laughs> i was going to say so it's not natural in the in the details in the specifics but at a general level what we're doing is exactly what we you just said we are using the major evolutionary weapon that our species has at its disposal our brain we don't as animals we have only two things that allow us to survive and do well the fact that we can reason our way through problems and the fact that we work together with other people we are social social animals right other than that you know human beings you know as a, as a species we don't have strong muscles we don't run very fast we don't fly we don't do any of the the kind of things that a lot of animals do but what we do have is a large brain capable of solving problems and the ability and the natural instinct to come together with other people and cooperate in order to solve problems and that's exactly what the stoics meant when they said that we should live according to nature meaning according to human nature meaning the nature of a rational social species I think that's a good a good thought to to end our conversation on Massimo. Thank you so much. Let's use our brains and our 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 commitment to our brothers and sisters and our neighbors, whether we like them or not. My my <laughs> my right. grandmother my grandmother used to say she, she was an Irish Catholic and she used to say. Um, Jesus said, "Love thy neighbor." He never said, "Like them." So. That's right. <laughs> I think my my grandmother from Naples said the same thing. Okay. So they, they might have known each other. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Thank you so much, Massimo. And I'm going pleasure. to have all the uh, all the links to your book and to the quest for character and how people can find it and find you and hopefully find your um, Substack. Do you call it a blog? Do you call that your Substack? The term, I guess, it's newsletter, and I kind of like it. It's kind of yeah. old fashioned. I kind of like it. <laughs> Figs in winter. I love. I love the title of it, and uh, it's it's a very beautiful a beautiful thing to have in your inbox every week. All right. Thank you very much, Massimo. Absolutely. Let me know when this comes out. So, so, what did you think of Massimo? Professor Piliucci is nothing if not prolific. And I had actually a lot of questions that I never asked uh, about his process, about how he writes, what his schedule is, whether he writes on several topics at once. He has, um, he has a newsletter, Figs in Winter, which is on Substack. And uh, in Figs in Winter, he tackles all the eternal issues, of course, like ethics, how to live, science, what to know, pseudoscience, what to stay away from, and reasoning, how to think. So I think all of those are very, very applicable to the rest of us listening. But all Professor Piliucci's writing is definitively for and of our, our time, which makes it so powerful, I think. And it's why we are giving away 10 copies of The Quest for Character by Massimo Piliucci. And if you go over 
to our Instagram page for Veg Your Best, you'll see a post. But all you have to do, it's very simple. All you have to do is write an iTunes review, email us a screenshot of your review, and we'll send you your choice of either a physical copy or an ebook if you're in North America, and an ebook if you live outside North America. The first 10 emails will get a copy, and I think you will love this book and see the world just a little differently. But more importantly, I think you'll see your role, your importance in this world a little differently after reading The Quest for Character. So leave us an honest iTunes review. I know it's a hassle. I do. I know. That's why I'm going to send you this very nice gift, this very nice thank you present. And if you have already left an honest iTunes review in the past, please let me know so I can thank you personally. In the show notes, you'll find Massimo's links, uh, as well as the instructions to get your own copy of The Quest for Character, what the story of Socrates and Alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders. Okay, kids. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you loved listening to Professor Piliucci. And as you know, it's always an honor for me that you share your time with this podcast. But now it's time to get out there and veg your best. Veg Your Best podcast production, music, and editing by Charlie Weinshank. Thanks, Charlie. Before you go, it would mean so much to me and the Veg Your Best team if you would hit subscribe, leave us a five-star review, or share with someone you think might be interested. Something about algorithms, it helps bump us up a little in the rankings, and that's the best way to help others find the podcast and for us to find our audience. So, until next week, make it easy and veg your best.